All right. Well, Micah chapter 6, <clears throat> we're going to be looking again at verses 1 through 8. And so for those of you here, if you've arrived, if you'll stand as we read God's Word together, I invite you, wherever you are watching on the live stream, if you would like to stand as we read God's Word together, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear the Word of the Lord. It says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised. And what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. That you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Heavenly Father, may we, your children, be people who do justice, who love kindness, and walk humbly with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, again, <clears throat> good morning, New Breed. It is good to be back with you. For those of you who are here, for those of you who are watching, I am so thankful to be back with you and, and thankful to be opening up God's Word with you. Uh, as I... As I said in the, the email that went out this week, I am so thankful for the pastors of New Breed. Uh, October was, it is was, it is past tense now as we are in November. October was Pastor Appreciation Month, and I feel so blessed to be, uh, to be able to serve with such amazing pastors. And I was, I mean, I'm always appreciative of them uh, and their labor, but I was especially grateful for them as myself and my family as we uh, battled our stint with COVID. I have officially been cleared from uh, isolation. In fact, I am safe to be around, safer than most people to be around. Uh, but it hit me particularly hard, uh, and so I'm still recovering. My lungs uh, are still trying to get back to normal, and I say all that to just say, so please excuse me if I have to drink a little bit more water this morning and Lord willing, I won't have one of my little mini coughing fits. Uh, I've been a little anxious because this will be the longest that I've talked since I got COVID. Um, but it is good to be back, good to be uh, in the Word with you. I also want to mention this here at the beginning, uh, especially for those of you who are watching, because those of you who are here don't really have a choice. Uh, but if you are watching, please, please, please stick around um, for the announcement part, uh, part of the service, uh, because we do have some very, very important announcements to communicate with you. Uh, I don't think many people check out before that, but just in case you were planning on it, please stick around uh, for the announcements. 
Uh, but as you know, prior to my absence and being gone for about a month, we were nearing the end of a study entitled Race, Justice, and the Cross. Race, Justice, and the Cross. And I, I'd like to finish that series next week with you. So we'll, we'll talk about it today and again next week, Lord willing. But, but if you remember, I want to kind of try to refresh us a little bit. We've been having this conversation about race, justice, and the cross uh, for a few reasons. First, because it matters to our God. Our God is a just God. And as in the passage we just read, we are called to reflect the justice of God in this world. But the second reason we're having this conversation is because there is injustice in our world. We see it. We are reminded of sin's sting every time we see evil swept under the rug, every time we see the sin of partiality play itself out, whether in individuals or, or in systemic uh, realities. We are living in a world that is plagued by sin. We see injustice. So we're having this conversation. And the third reason that we're having this conversation, and this is no small reason, is because the world is telling us how to think. The world is trying to tell us how to think. And the world is offering us solutions to the injustices we see. And often the world's solutions are just that. They are worldly solutions. They will bring no eternal remedy and they will bring no real permanent change. The world's solutions at best are band-aids on bullet wounds. But God has something to say about injustice. And this is the fourth reason we're having this conversation. Because God is not silent when it comes to injustice. You know, there are some, of the, some aspects of Scripture where we build theologies and doctrines off of honestly very little information, right? Like the Bible doesn't speak very much about the end times. Uh, some pastors have argued that that's one of the things we wish God would have talked more about, but we have whole theologies built about that. Injustice isn't one of those things. The Bible speaks about injustice frequently. It's not hard to see that, that God is not silent when it comes to issues of injustice. He's not silent in terms of the Christian's response. God has something to say. So we've been talking about it. And throughout the course of our series, if you remember, we've talked about being made in the image of God and the intrinsic worth and value that comes from being made in the image of God. We talked about the beautiful diversification of humanity and God's intention behind that. We saw that when we looked at Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. We, we looked at the sin of partiality as it's recorded in James and then the last time we spoke, we began a conversation with this passage that we just read, Micah 6, 1 through 8, about justice. And this morning, I want to continue that conversation from Micah and consider this idea of responding to our just God. Responding to our just God. So I did this about four weeks ago, so let me do it again. Let me recap for you what's going on in the book of Micah. In the book of Micah, God is confronting Israel for their sin. At the beginning of the book, he's dealing a little bit more specifically with injustice and oppression as it, as it has been poured out from the leaders of the nation. But as he moves through the book, he, he, he speaks not only to the leaders, but also to the people in general. They too are guilty of oppression and injustice. And God is saying in the book of Micah that he will judge this sin. He will judge. 
But God is also telling the people through the prophet Micah that he will redeem and restore. And in that redemption and in that restoration, God will righteously reign. And so in chapter 6, what we just read, we we have the the response that God desires from his children, specifically in verses 6 through 8, the the end of it there. We have the response that God desires. But before God tells them how to respond, and we talked about this last, last time we were in this series. I keep wanting to say last week. It's been a minute. But the last time we were looking at, at Micah, we talked about how God grounds the response of his children in his very identity. Do you remember that? He grounds it in his very identity. He forces them to consider his character because before verses 6 through 8, before God kind of lays out what he desires from them in terms of doing justice and and loving kindness and walking humbly with God, those first five verses are are, are all God calling the people to reflect on who he is. He says there in verse 3, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then he goes on to recount his goodness and his justice and his faithfulness throughout the ages as they have seen. God grounds any faithful action in his very character. And as Tim Keller notes, he he writes this, Biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules and guidelines. It is rooted in the very character of God. And it is the outworking of that character, which is never less than just. So before God tells his children what to do, he reestablishes who he is. Because as we mentioned in part one, ultimately any proper understanding of what is right and just has to come from a proper understanding of God. Why? Because God is the objective reality and example of everything that is right and just. But then in verses 6 through 8, he tells them to respond. In light of what they now know about God, he tells them to respond. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So the heart of what I want to focus on this morning in terms of responding to our just God are those three imperatives there at the end of verse 8, those three commands to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to spend some time dissecting those, but before we do that, we can't overlook what's being said there in verses 6 and 7. You see, in verses 6 and 7, what God is communicating, it's very significant. It's that this, this faux spirituality, right? Like this, this fake religion, this going through the motion, it just won't cut it. That, that fake religion is not sufficient. Going through the spiritual motions is not faithfulness. God does not want a bunch of people who merely look the part. 
Let me put it another way. God does not care if you black out your Instagram. God really doesn't care if you lambast people on social media. Well, I mean, he cares if you're sinning, obviously. But, but he's not looking at your social media posts saying, that's faithfully doing justice. God doesn't care about the show. It doesn't please him. It doesn't impress him. He, he, he's not, ah, that's my child. No, that's not what God wants. God is desiring his people to walk out his commands. To have a faith that is deeper than outward appearances and religious shows. And to have a faith that is rooted deep in our hearts that changes how we live on a daily basis. I mean, let's be honest. How often does God speak and warn against this surface level spirituality in his word? We see it here in the text in Micah. We see it in Hosea 6, 6. For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In Psalm 51, Verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We see it in Amos 5, verses 18 through 24, where God just condemns his people for putting on this religious show and yet failing to do justice. And we know that passion. It concludes with God saying, what I want, what I want is for justice to roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We see it in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus who was doing all the right religious stuff. I mean, they held good theology. They hated bad theology. They called it out, right? They were serving. They were doing all of the religious stuff. And yet God says, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. God will never be satisfied with just going through the motions. He wants people of faith that have hearts that are madly in love with him that beat for the same things that his heart beats for. And this will play itself out in how we live in this world. So these three imperatives, these commands, they are short, they are sweet, but they are packed full of truth. And so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking these three commands, considering this idea of responding to our just God and how it is we live promoting justice, faithfully responding to who God is, how it is that we make much of his great name. So first, do justice. Do justice. Now, if you remember back to our last sermon in this series, we spent our time Honestly, examining the justice of God as we see it in Scripture. Not, not the full picture, but trying to give a clear snapshot of, of our just God. Because again, remember, the world has ideas about what justice looks like. The world is telling us how to think. But if indeed God is the objective standard of everything that is good and just, then again, any sense of fighting for justice has to begin by examining the justice of God. Again, that's why before God calls his people to do justice, he first reminds them of his very character and nature. And that's what we looked at 
The last time we were together in this series, we talked about four aspects of God's justice seen in Scripture. I'm going to try to hit them and do a somewhat reminder as we go through it, but if you really want to dive into that, go back and listen to that sermon. But when we were talking about the four aspects of God's justice that we see in Scripture, we talked about His distributive justice. We talked about His procedural or legislative justice. We talked about His retributive justice. And we talked about restorative justice. So, so what I want to do is quickly and hopefully thoughtfully help us understand how, how to do justice in a way that reflects those aspects of God's just character. You with me? All right, and so remember, well, this is why it's important. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are the ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We, brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, we represent the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, that is no small task. We represent the kingdom of God here on earth. We represent our God who has called us and saved us, and therefore his kingdom is what we want to make known. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of justice. It is a kingdom of justice. So let's walk through these first. We have distributive justice. And when we were talking about this a few weeks ago, I read you a quote from T.M. Moore where he wrote that in ancient Israel, it was the responsibility <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of a local community to distribute freely of its goods to those who were in need among them. Whether such people became poor through some unforeseeable exigency or whether they were immigrants or disabled, justice required that they be provided for according to their need by the community in which they live. That's the, the heart of distributive justice. God's distributive justice focuses on caring for the poor and the needy among us. This is a justice issue with God. And his word reflects this. We saw it in Leviticus 19 when we looked at the gleaning laws. We saw it in Leviticus 25 when we looked at the year of Jubilee and we see it throughout the New Testament in the interactions of the early church. We talked about how this is very important that at the heart of distributive justice is this idea, as Bruce Walkie says, that the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And that comes from the Proverbs. The Proverbs speak a lot about comparing and contrasting the righteous and the wicked. And so the righteous in the Proverbs are seen as, as those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And, and on the flip side, the wicked are seen as those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Now, if we're going to be people who do justice, we have to have a heart that is willing to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community. And for that to take place, there are a couple things that have to take place first, primarily in our thinking. See, first, we have to believe that everything we have is not ultimately ours. That everything we have is not ultimately ours. Because remember, Scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I don't care how hard you have worked. I don't care how much you have toiled and strived. There is nothing that you have that was not given to you by God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That means that everything we have is given to us by God to be stewarded for His glory. And, and 
There are a lot of implications in that, brothers and sisters, in in that statement, that everything we have is given to us to be stewarded for God's glory. That means that, easy one, right? Your, Your money is given to you by God to be stewarded for His glory. It doesn't mean you have to give it all away because the Bible also calls you to care for your family. You have responsibilities, but it's to steward what you have well for His glory. But it's not just your money. Your car is given to you by God to be stewarded for his glory. Your home is given to you by God to be stewarded for his glory. Your apartment, listen, your shoes are given to you by God to be stewarded for his glory. To put them on when it gets cold outside and go tell somebody about Jesus. Everything that you have down to the toys in your house, the basketball that you have is given to you by God to be used and stewarded for his glory. Everything we have is His. And everything we have is to be stewarded well for His glory. And listen, this stands in stark contrast to how the world sees things. To again quote Tim Keller, he says that while secular individualism says that your money belongs to you, and socialism says that your money belongs to the state, the Bible says that all of your money belongs to God. And He simply entrusts it to you. So we have to believe, ultimately, that everything we have is not ours if we are going to be faithful in distributive justice, to care for the poor, to care for the needy, right? I know the American ideal is like, let me work so hard and buy all that stuff that I want, to buy the new technology when it comes out. iPhone 12's dropping, y'all. But there is a biblical mandate that we think first about advantaging the community before we ever think of advantaging ourselves. Advantaging the community even even if it means putting us at a disadvantage. And listen, in the New Testament church, this went so far, as as we'll see in a minute in Acts 2, of people selling their property to give to those in need. That's disadvantaging yourself. Let me try to bring it into our political world. Are you willing to pay higher taxes if it benefits the needy? That's disadvantaging yourself to advantage the community. I'm going to stop. Well, you'll have to flesh that one out. That could go a bunch of different ways. But not only that second, we have to, we have to not only believe that everything that we have is ultimately God's and he entrusts it to us, but second, we have to see the needs of those around us. We have to actually look for the needs of those around us. There's a beautiful picture of God's distributive justice being lived out in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Luke records this, and he says, so, so those who accepted his message and were baptized, right? That's brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who accepted his message and were baptized. Let me, let me pause here for a minute. I just want to throw this out there as we prepare to read this. This isn't talking about the people that have walked with Jesus for 20 years and figured this thing out. This isn't, this isn't the mark of the mature believer who's walked with Jesus for 30, 40 years. These are people who believed his message, got baptized, and this was their immediate response to Jesus. It says, in that day, about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property and distributed the proceeds to all as any, as any had need. 
Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. How I long for that to be said of us, that every day the Lord is adding to our numbers those who are being saved. But this was not the mark. This was not the action of those veteran Christians who've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40 years. This was the response of people because they saw Jesus. They understood the gospel. They understood what had been done for them on the cross. They understood the heart of God as it pertained to justice and the natural outflow was to then do justice. And we've made this somehow the complicated part of our faith. I'm saying weak. I don't know about you. Maybe it's not for you. I gotta lighten up. I just got back. But notice that in verse 45 of Acts 2. He says, They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And this implies that they knew people's needs. And they weren't satisfied with, Thanks for sharing. I'll pray for you. Not that we shouldn't pray for people, we absolutely should. That reminds me of something in James, right? What good is it if you say go and be well fed, but you don't do anything? They knew the people's needs and they stepped in. Again, they disadvantaged themselves for the community. They modeled in their distributive justice, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. They modeled it perfectly, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Again, it doesn't mean you can't look out for your own interest. You absolutely should. Faithfulness demands it. But it's that you're going to look out for others more. I want you to notice that their response was not first and foremost an examination of the causes of why these people had need to see whether they merited their care or not, but rather it was a willingness to step in. You know, I, I hear people say all the time when we talk about caring for the poor, and the response of some is, well, doesn't the Bible say in Second Th- Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat? absolutely does say that. But in 2 Thessalonians, that passage is written about you as an individual examining yourself. It's not given to you as a, as a passage to then judge other people and you determine whether or not they merit your care. No, the Bible calls you to just meet the needs of people. They'll have to reckon with the Lord why they're needy. That's not for us to decide. We are called to be faithful, to do justice, and to meet the needs of the people around, around us. And yeah, in meeting that meet needs, it might mean calling some people to repentance for sin, but we still meet needs. So if we're going to do justice, we have to reflect the distributive justice shown in the heart of God. I'm going to pick up the pace here, but we also have to reflect God's procedural justice. And if you remember, what this has to do with is justice as it plays out on the legislative level when it comes to the law. God cares that laws are just. It's riddled throughout the Old Testament that laws should not be impartial. There should not be unbalanced scales, but everyone should be treated with equity. That reflects who he is. God demands that there be no impartiality shown, no favoritism shown, because our God shows no impartiality. He He shows no favoritism. And if we are going to do justice and reflect the character of God and the nature of God, procedural justice will play itself out in our lives on two fronts. 
it'll play itself out in the personal and in the public. So here's what I mean personally. If we're going to reflect God's procedural justice, if we're going to do justice, we on the individual level in our individual lives must fight the temptation to show partiality in any form. Whether that be partiality based on race, partiality based on how much money someone makes, partiality based on someone's gender, we have to fight on the personal level if we're going to reflect the the procedural justice of God to show no impartiality because God shows no partiality. But second, in the public, we will engage as far as we are allowed in the political landscape. Now listen, I want to say this. I am keenly aware that this application that I'm about to do for, for the procedural justice would not be an application that could be used everywhere in this world. But I'm not talking to everyone in this world. I'm talking about people that live here in our country, in the United States of America. And one of the implications and the applications of modeling God's procedural justice is that we would be involved as far as we are allowed in the political landscape. And I know not everyone lives in a democracy, but we do. And we have the right and the privilege to participate. And in so doing, we can reflect by our participation the procedural justice of God. For us as Christians, we should be involved to some degree in participating in the political landscape of this country. Now listen, I'm not saying that everyone has to be a politician. Please don't be a politician. Unless the Lord calls you to be a politician. I'm not saying that everyone has to go campaign for a political party. I'm not saying you have to argue in the public square for why you're voting for a particular party. But on a base level... Participation should matter as long as our government gives us a chance to have some sort of say in the procedural reality of our world or our country. Man, we can reflect God's justice there. Simplest thing you can do is go vote. It's two days away, right? Go vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But pray, seek God's face. Vote according to the word, and according to your conscience, and, and model what you see of God's procedural justice and how you cast the ballot. I understand that's really a lot easier said than done because it's tricky right now. That's why I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. So to do justice, we, to reflect our just God, we have to care about distributive justice, we have to care about procedural justice, but also we have to care about retributive justice if we are going to do justice. And this one is a little tricky. It is. Because ultimately it requires us to think appropriately. And that will change our actions. Because let me explain. If you recall back to when we did part one of, justice, uh, of this justice conversation, I mentioned how retributive justice, which is, which is punishment for wrongdoing. It, you know, God shows retributive justice when he punishes sins and he must do it. We talked about the fact that this is ultimately reserved for God alone. And nevertheless, we, we see a picture of it in that God has called governments to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. But in other words, retributive justice, for retributive justice, it's not our responsibility as individuals to punish those who do wrong. That's actually very significant, and somebody might need to hear that again. It is not our responsibility to punish those who have done wrong. So the way that we reflect retributive justice is ultimately by remembering and believing that injustice will always be dealt with. That God himself has declared, vengeance is mine. 
And as a result of genuinely believing this, we will free ourselves from the burden of thinking that if we can't provide justice for victims of injustice, then they will never get it. And I'm going to just kind of speak from my heart for a minute. I need to be reminded of that because Breonna Taylor is a hard one for me. And there is, there is, there is a, a desire in me to believe that if we don't get justice for her, then justice will never be had. But what that declaration by God reminds me is that justice will come. And it doesn't have to come from my hand. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is not ultimately in earthly justice. I'm not saying we don't fight for it. I'm not saying we don't pursue it. But our hope is in a God who is perfectly just. And who has told us that vengeance is mine. I will repay. So we can model retributive justice. We can do justice by believing that God is just and will punish. And he sees all. He knows all. He knows when it is unjust. He knows when it is just. He is perfect in his discernment. And we rest there. We rest. But finally, in terms of doing justice, and I promise we'll not spend this long on the other two imperatives we had a little bit to unpack here, we have to consider restorative justice. We talked about how God is a God of restorative justice, and what restorative justice is, is it, it seeks to reconcile and restore that which has been broken. That's what restorative justice does. It seeks to reconcile and restore that which has been broken. Now, when we talked about this before, we mentioned the two categories of restorative justice that Dr. Eric Mason gave us that I thought were very helpful, that you see restorative justice play itself out in two facets, in preventative and intervening means. So preventative and inner meaning, both of those under the category of restorative justice. So with preventative, we looked at how God's law was instituted in part to show sin in order that people would understand and avoid it. Now we know the law didn't do that perfectly, but, that, but that's part of why the law was instituted to prevent injustice from taking place. I mean, when Jesus, when Jesus speaks of why divorce laws were instituted by God, his whole argument is that, hey, man, we want to prevent injustice from happening to these women who if these dudes just leave them, they have nothing. Because that was a very patriarchal society and that a woman was dependent on her husband if the husband could just leave whenever he wants. And so God instituted divorce regulations, not because God likes divorce, because trying to, he was trying to prevent injustice from taking place. The law was set up to, to, to prevent injustice. And so we too want to be preventative. We want to be wise in how we live and operate so as to prevent injustice from taking place, both in the world out there, but also in our immediate circles. Let me give you an example, right? Take Newbury, the church. Don't know why I said that like you didn't know it was the church. There are reasons we have policies in place regarding new breed kids. There are reasons we require background checks. There are reasons we have expectations for pastors and how they interact and respond to individuals, especially in how we interact and respond to females of the church who may need us to step in, but we have to be wise in how we do. All of this is meant to be preventative in nature, to guard and to, and to stop injustice from taking place. They're a means of trying to prevent injustice. But it's not just in the church. We need these in our individual lives as well. 
We need to have preventative measures around our dinner table. What do you mean by that? Well, listen, there are people who come into my house that they know based off of conversations I've had and what I believe and stipulations I've put in place that injustice ain't going to fly at my table. Prejudice is not tolerated in my home. Partiality is not okay. And so there are means that we in our individual lives set up preventative measures to stop injustice from happening. The first time someone is racist is at my table. I'm not throwing them out of the house, but it will be talked about as a means of preventing it from happening again. But unfortunately, we know that preventative measures, they won't guarantee that injustices will never occur. Just like the law of God did not guarantee that sin would stop. But when it occurs, this is where the intervening aspect of restorative justice comes in. When injustice happens, hear me, we step in. Whatever form of injustice it is, economic injustice, racial injustice, whether it's, it's injustice of abuse or things of that nature, we step in. It's what we're called to do. And we seek to reconcile and restore that which has been broken. Now hear me, this, this is so important. This, for the believer, is where we look so different from the world, at least we should, and how we do restorative justice. Because we know, church, we know that the only way reconciliation and restoration can take place is through the gospel. I mean, the pinnacle of God's restorative justice is seen on the cross. When God steps in, when he intervenes and restores by giving his own son as a payment for our sin and restoring us to a proper relationship with him, one that we could have never had if it wasn't for Jesus. That's restorative justice. That is God stepping in. And we believe that any remedy to injustice, hear me, I believe that any remedy to injustice that does not include the gospel will bring no real nor eternal reconciliation. It will bring no real or eternal reconciliation. That's why we proclaim the gospel. And I said that earlier in the series. If the gospel is not present in what we're doing, we're doing nothing of real eternal value. We're doing nothing that will ultimately change anything. The gospel is what reconciles and restores. The gospel is what changes sinful hearts and brings life where there was death. It's the gospel. So the first imperative we have is to do justice, to reflect our just God. But this is followed in our text by God saying, not only must we do justice, but also love kindness. Love, kindness. That's the second imperative. Love, kindness. And oh, church, how this is needed. That we would be a people that loves kindness. I want you to notice when God says this because it's important. It's in the midst of injustice that God calls for people to love kindness in this text. You see, when we love kindness, it will keep us from doing two things. It will keep us from perpetuating injustice. Why? Because injustice is unkind. 
And when we love kindness, it will keep us from perpetuating injustice. But second, it is loving kindness in the midst of injustice that sets us apart from a world that screams that we ought to hate those who commit injustices. It is loving kindness in the midst of injustice that sets us apart from the world that screams for us to hate those who commit unjust acts. You know, we live in a time of what has been deemed cancel culture. And cancel culture is the new norm. And I hate it. Because what cancel culture is, it means, right, that you screw up or you sin in front of the watching world in in a particular way, then you deserve to have everything taken away from you. You deserve to be cast out from society and to be treated as a modern day leper. And this thinking is so counter to what the Bible is calling us to. I mean, Remember this, our aim is to see the gospel change lives and reconcile as people repent of their sins. And I don't know about you, but I have noticed that this does not typically happen the first time someone is confronted with their sin. Doesn't happen. Some of us know that very, we all know that to be keenly true because not a one of us, the first time someone told us we did something wrong, repented and came to know Jesus. For some of us, it took 10 years. Some of us, it took 20 years. For some of us, it took 30, 40 years. Some of you may be watching now, and it still hasn't happened. And the tone of our day and age is, is that there are some sins that are just unforgivable. And the person who commits them immediately deserves disdain and anger and harshness. But this is not kindness. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that there is no place for righteous anger. There absolutely is. The problem, though, is when our anger is directed at a person and not an offense. When we direct it at a person, we are, in fact, being unjust. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, if one offense merited being completely cut off with no hope of redemption then not a one of us could stand. In fact, it is God's kindness towards us and patience with us that allows us the opportunity to repent and be changed. Romans 2, 4, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Do you know why, for those of you who are in Christ, that you repented of your sins? Because God was kind and patient. And if we take a moment and reflect on this, we know this to be true. Because for those of, in, uh, those of us in Christ, this is our story. Again, not a one of us came out believing Not one of us repented the first time mom or dad or whoever raised you said, don't do that, it's wrong. Yet in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, God was so patient and kind and loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay the debt of our sin. Raised from the dead and invites us to be reconciled and restored through his work. God is patient and God is kind. He has been so with you. Who are you to refuse to do that to those around you? 
I'm speaking as much to myself there as to you. So the reconciling example set for us by God himself is one of patience and kindness toward sin. Towards someone in sin, I apologize. And God can use that patience and kindness to change a heart in Christ Jesus and real restoration and reconciliation can take place. But we have to love kindness. I'll be honest with you here. Kindness is hard. Kindness can be very hard. But here's the good news about kindness. It is a fruit that the Spirit can and will produce in the life of a believer. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It is something the Spirit can produce. And so when we are striving to be faithful in knowing Jesus and loving Jesus, when we are faithful to confess our sins to one another and let our brothers and sisters step in and fight alongside of us for holiness, when we often remind ourselves of the gospel and God's continued kindness and patience towards us in spite of our sin and our ongoing sin, the Spirit can and will produce this in us. And this leads to the third and the final imperative that I have for you. Not me, but God does. I don't even have to act like these are my points. They're straight from the Bible. The third imperative that God gives people in response to the injustice plaguing them, responding to who he is as a just God, is to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. And I'm probably going to spend the least amount of time on this one, but in a large degree, this is actually probably the most significant one of the three. Because the ability to faithfully walk out the first two imperatives hinges on this. If we are ever going to live faithfully in light of who God is, if we are ever going to be reflections of his glory, manifestations of his kingdom on earth, it begins and ends with daily walking humbly with your God. And so let's break that down. We're called to walk. That's, that's a long process. It's not a short walk. It's not a walk around the block. It is a long walk that will last the entirety of your life. And we walk humbly. We walk constantly and consistently broken under the weight of the gospel being reminded that God is everything and we are not. That we are not better than, as Pastor Curtis used to say, we're just better off because of Christ. We walk humbly with our God, loving those around us, seeing them as more significant than ourselves. But I love the, the last part of that, with your God. The fact that that is even possible should be drive us to long to do it all the more, that we can walk with our God. And the key to walking humbly with God, as I said, is to constantly remind ourselves of what we've already mentioned in the beautiful gospel. He is our God because of what Christ has done on the cross. Not because we were great, not because we figured it out, not because we were so smart, but because God loved us in spite of our sin 
and sent Jesus to die in our place and raise from the dead. And by his grace and his mercy, we have hearts that have been brought to life and that we can respond in faith and repentance. We can walk humbly with our God because Jesus has provided a means for him to be ours and for us to be his. God loves us and God has saved us. He has stepped in. And as we dwell on this and walk with God, we will see him as our greatest treasure. We will find rest and hope in the truth that this world is broken, but this world is not all that there is. This earthly kingdom is not eternal. And church, we have to believe that. We have to believe. I desperately want for you to believe that. You know, recently, John Piper wrote an article that got circulated that I think many of you probably saw about the election. It was good. I thought it was good, but there was a a specific section in it that really stood out to me as a pastor because he was speaking to pastors. And and I want to read to you what what he wrote. Apply it quickly and then we'll, we'll be done. He wrote this. He said, may I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone and what remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accept the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who will face hate and reviling and exclusion for Christ's sake and yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold their reward is great in heaven. Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Christ? Are you raising up generations of those who say with Paul, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Have you shown them that they are sojourners and exiles? That their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Church, I want that for you. I want you to walk humbly and faithfully with your God so that if this nation collapses, which it will, because no nation stands eternal, if we indeed face real persecution and are in prison, if we are stripped of our earthly possession, and even if our lives are taken, we can rest in the eternal kingdom that is waiting for us, that we understand deeply that this world is not our home. We are passing through. Brothers and sisters, what happens on Tuesday does not matter. Not in the eternal sense of this world. Not in light of the kingdom of God. Yes, there are things we hope for because we fight for justice, but it shouldn't break our joy and our confidence. If Donald Trump wins the election, my song will be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If Joe Biden wins the election, my song will be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If this thing crumbles tomorrow, 
May our song be our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I want you more than anything to count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And indeed, I want you to be able to say and believe in the depths of your bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I long for you to walk humbly with your God. Every day, savoring Him for who He is and what He has provided. And in so doing, we will bring Him glory and honor and praise and we will reflect His justice in the midst of an unjust world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, that we would be found faithful that we would be found to be walking humbly with You, our God. That we would be a people that loves kindness, that does justice. But God, more than anything, that we would see You as our greatest treasure. That we would count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing You. Help us, Father, because we need you. And Lord, I know, I know, God, that there is, there is anxiety and there is turmoil and there is fear about what the next four years will look like, the next eight years, the next 12 or 50, God. But I pray that we would believe that we are sojourners and exiles passing through. And while we are here, it might not go well. but help us to believe that if we are faithful, we will receive the reward that is ours in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would not look for rewards in this world. They will always fall short. They will never satisfy. But God, help us to run this race in such a way as to win a prize at the end. The end, God. And Lord, more than anything, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that has brought us peace is upon him. And God, I pray that that gospel that we know to save, for it has saved us, would be the gospel that we are trusting in to bring reconciliation and restoration and what has been broken in this world. Help us to be bold, God, in proclaiming the message because there is no greater message. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.